Hello and welcome to episode 46 of the Mark and Me podcast. As always, I'm your host Mark, and coming up on today's episode, it's going to be slightly different. Hopefully this isn't the first episode you've listened to of Mark and Me, and you'll know by now that I speak to various people within pop culture. So sometimes I'm talking to actors or directors within the film industry, or musicians, or bands from the music industry... Anyone within pop culture I try and get a good interview with and put it out there to keep it a nice kind of varied selection of guests for all you listeners out there. But today's a bit different, so I'm going to be joined by Matt Stocks. He hosts a podcast called Life in the Stocks. And as a podcaster myself, it's really difficult to find the time with life, you know, jobs, family and all the other stuff that gets in the way to listen to other people's podcasts. And I get sent a lot to listen to. But the first time I listened to Life in the Stocks, it was with Gail Porter, and I thought Matt had a great way of interviewing. And it gave me this idea of, I wanted to try and set up some podcasts with other podcasters, because for me, to have someone on the other end of a mic that already knows and how to do a podcast is a great idea, and I don't understand why no one's really doing it. So this is my first attempt of getting a podcaster, or like a full-time podcaster on the episode, and it's something that I'm going to do a lot more of. I like to keep my guests varied, so it won't be a case of next week's another podcaster than another. It'll be now and then, but stay tuned for that. Before I get into today's podcast, I want to talk about the last episode. So on episode 45, I was joined by Andy from the band Therapy. And this was another face-to-face interview that I got to do in Nottingham before they played a gig. And my god, the response has been phenomenal. So many people have listened, it's one of my most downloaded episodes. I've seen more people jump on board on social media and give their feedback who I don't recognise and they're new to Mark and me, so thank you to those people. But it was an absolute pleasure and it's a guest I'd love to get back on next year because after we recorded we were talking about films, TV and he's one of us. He loves the sort of stuff that I do so I think we've probably got another episode's worth of material we can do hopefully next year. So back on today's episode, as I said, I'm going to be joined by Matt Stocks. I'm a huge fan of his, and I'd never actually met him, but we've been planning this for about a year. He was in Leicester with the Less Than Jake tour and Real Big Fish, and he was actually here to do a face-to-face interview. So for me, I thought this would be the best opportunity to get the best quality recording, but also... I don't know, there's just a different feel when you can do a face-to-face interview, and if I could do all my guests face-to-face, I would, but unfortunately with most of them based in America or overseas, it's not that easy, but I'm so thrilled that Matt's took the time to join me on today's Mark and Me. Now with this episode, it is a two-parter, and it's something that I've been kind of... I, I didn't know if I should release it as one long episode at nearly two hours, But the more I edited and the more I was listening back, I thought to myself, this works as a two-parter. And I'm not going to say why, but there's kind of two sides to this episode, and I think it does work better. But it won't be long until you get the second part, so don't worry, I'm not going to leave you on a big cliffhanger. But what I want to do now is get straight into the interview. So here's me and Matt Stocks from the Life in the Stocks podcast, talking all things podcasting. So Matt, thanks for joining me on the Mark and Me podcast today. Well, thanks for joining me in my hotel room, Mark. It's very nice, isn't it? Have you ever done a hotel room interview before? No, so this could go either way. Because they have the potential, I think, to just be a bit weird. I've done a couple and you always feel a little bit rude asking because it's quite an, imp- an imp- imposition, is that the word? Probably, I don't know. You're, you're imposing on their personal space, but yeah. I always ask anyway because often if they arrange to do the interview at the hotel, they're going to presume that you'll just do it in the bar. And yeah. you're like, I did my first ever 
ever podcast for Life in the Stocks was Kyle Gass from Tenacious D. Nice. It was episode five, so I didn't put it out first, but it was the first one I did, and I made the mistake of not wearing headphones, not checking the background noise. I just set up these two condenser microphones on a table and chatted to him for an hour. And it's almost unlistenable for me now hearing it because there's so much background noise going on whether that's other customers talking obviously there's music because it's a bar and it's you know for a long hour-long conversation yeah. that it's quite a big ask of your audience to sit there and kind of put up with all that so i do think that the privacy of a hotel room is far more suitable it's probably the smallest hotel room i've ever been in in my life hey don't be blowing up my spot like that <laughs> yeah. you want to be saying this room is gangster it's massive but i love the you know the, the heated swimming pool next door right it's just for yeah you. the bit that you can't yeah, see yeah, of course you haven't but, seen uh, the bathroom yet mate there's a jacuzzi in there i'm i'm liking it a lot and to be fair the sound is perfect it's silent is it? listen Listen to that. It's silent. Hello, darkness, my old I like friend. it. But yeah, it's a pleasure to be on the show, dude. I enjoy what you do. And uh, it's always nice to make new friendships with fellow podcasters. So thank you for having me on. It's very new to me now because obviously having another podcaster on is something I want to do a lot more of. Uh, I listen to your show. I listen to people like Daniel Picartas. I listen to Jericho. You know what it's like as a podcaster. Trying to find the time to listen to other podcasts is just impossible. It's not like arrogance or snotty where you're walking around going... I don't want to listen to anyone else's. It's having the time. Absolutely. And Absolutely. I yeah, wish yeah. I had more because you spend a lot of time on the road, but I want to speak to more podcasters and put them on the other side because all we do is spend our life asking people questions and I want to ask you questions. Well, you can ask me anything you want today, Mark. And just very quickly off the back of that, because you raised an interesting point that I have found podcasting to be the least precious least jealous envious yeah arena of media and entertainment that i've ever worked in you know coming from a background of radio and tv presenting and journalism you come across a lot of egos in those worlds and you come across a lot of two-faced let's say peers and i found with podcasting it's such a supportive community and i've been on a couple of others and yeah it is hard trying to find the time to listen to other ones because you've got to bear in mind if you're not only doing the podcast yourself, you're then editing it to go out. Yeah. So half of your time is actually spent not only doing interviews, but listening back to your own to make sure they're good to go up. And then, you know, there's not much time then left to go and listen to another hour-long podcast. You have to, I think, really be invested in the host yeah. or really interested in a particular guest that they've got on. So you should be very flattered that I listen to yours. I am, <laughs> I am. I'm always flattered when anybody listens to my podcast. So you just literally touched on them when you started being a journalist, you started in radio. Uh, I want to take it back right to the start. So we're looking 2010. Yeah, that would have been it. You started working at Kerrang Radio, and back then Kerrang were huge. Mm. Let's be honest, right now Kerrang's not as big because you've got Scars, you've got every other station out there. And radio doesn't seem as popular. Like If you think back to the day, we had loads of stuff. Everyone would listen to Kerrang, everyone would watch Kerrang. Now, I think if I put on my Skybox, there's 150 channels of music. And Kerrang, unfortunately, radio just kind of died, didn't it, really? And tell me about your time, because like, we're looking at eight years ago. How was it, and how did you get involved and start working there? It was the best possible experience anybody in their mid-20s who likes music could ever hope for. It really was the dream gig, man. So I did English and film at uni. And my goal and my dream was to get into script writing. That was always where I sort of saw my life going. And then whilst I was at uni, I got interested in radio because the uh, station at the university that I was at, Exeter was the uni, and the station was Expression FM. And they had a partnership with XFM. So as far as like student campus stations go, theirs was fairly 
professional, yeah. I guess. And so there was a lot of cool stuff going on. And it just excited me as a medium. I remember, I, I guess my introduction to radio would have been um, Private Parts, Howard Stern. Yeah. And I like the freedom of radio because really it's like theatre of the brain, isn't it? Yeah. All, all you have to go on is the sound of what's going on and you're listening to it and the rest you kind of make your own connections and associations in your head. And it's not restrained by budgets like TV is. Like TV can look really crap. Um, a lot of people ask me often why I don't put my podcast on YouTube. And it's like, well... If I was going to do that, I'd want it to look the bomb. Yeah. And that's going to cost money. Whereas with an audio podcast, it's two mics. Yeah. And you're ready to go. So I kind of fell in love with radio at uni. But coming from Birmingham, um, I missed the launch of Kerrang. But then when I got home, I sort of just discovered this amazing station on my doorstep. And was like, oh my God. Like, I'm kind of now at the center of this revival of Birmingham culture. Because it really did inject a newfound coolness into the city when it had sort of lacked for that for a while, I think. And as you say, when it did launch, it was huge. We did about 1.8 million listeners, um, like at any point in time across the UK, I think at the peak of its power, it was getting nominated for Sony Awards and it was kicking off. And so I, the kind of way I found myself in there was I went to school with a guy who was hosting the evening show called Henry Evans. I didn't know him from school, but we had a lot of mutual friends and I knew his younger brother from college. Yeah. And a couple of people, uh, his younger brother Rob was one of them and then I can't remember who else. It was maybe my friend Joel. A couple of people sent me messages on Facebook saying, oh, Henry Evans is looking for a producer on Kerrang! And I was doing a community-based show of my own at the time in Birmingham called The Rock Pop and Roll Show, if you believe it or not. I love the name. <laughs> right? I was like, well, I want to play rock and pop, so I'll just <laughs> call it so cheesy, like so typical early radio experience stuff. Um, and the station as well was in the Custard Factory in Birmingham, and the station was called Rhubarb Radio. I love that so, venue, though. That's a great place. It's a really place, cool space. Yeah. They used to have the pool there yeah. at that time as well. So I was doing my little show, and I was falling in love with radio, and that was kind of where I wanted to take my career. And then this opportunity presents itself. And that was the moment really where I seized kind of life by the balls and went, nobody else is getting that producer's gig. I'm having that. And so I wrote to Henry on Facebook, having not really met him before, and just said, I want to come in and do a week like work experience with you. Will you have me in? Here's like what I've done up until now. Here's why I think I'll be the right guy for the job, etc. And he took a chance and he invited me in. And I think he had a few other, well, I would presume he almost definitely had several other applicants, but we just hit it off coming from the same area, having the same friends. We just had a mutual, I think, connection, very similar sense of humor. We're very different people, different tastes in music, different personalities. But I think that rooting in the same village where we grew up really helped. And we just hit it off. And so I did this week's work experience. And it was just before Christmas 2009. And then on New Year's Eve 2009, going into 2010, I was on the train to, I think, London for New Year's Eve or Bristol, one of the two. And I got a text from Henry basically saying, uh, how do you fancy coming in? next week and being my full-time producer unpaid it won't be paid uh, but you will be in the building and in the mix and you'll obviously then be next in line when an opportunity say uh, to cover a show comes up or something like that so started off 2010 as the new producer of the evening show and I did it unpaid for 10 months every day of the week Monday to Friday for 10 months and I remember my dad going I can't believe they're not paying you like it seems illegal yeah, And that, for me, was the start of uh, a continuing theme, I think, of the entertainment and media industry 
taking the biscuit. Yeah, just a bit. When it comes to worker exploitation. And because of the perception that it's cool and exciting and fun to work in, say, radio or music journalism or whatever, people know that they can take you for a ride because if you say no, because there's no money on the table, there's going to be a hundred other people that are first in line to say yes. So I took the hit and I did it. And honestly, it was the happiest 10 months of my life, I think, because I was learning the craft. And that's really when I fell in love more so with presenting and with radio than even music or film or anything. Like, I just love this art form. I believe it is an art form. And I believe the people who are the best in their respective fields are true artists. Like, I think Zane Lowe is the best music presenter that's ever lived in my opinion and i used to listen to his show every day to like steel tips yeah um just the way he'd present new music in such an exciting and engaging way and then you, you know go and do these long form interviews with people like rick rubin and then just crush that as well and you're like oh my god this guy's amazing so i did that for 10 months and then henry left because he got married and he was like look i've just got married i want to start a family i want to have more time at home and i'm working this evening show so i don't get any nights with my my partner now my wife so he left uh 10 months in and a new guy took over i continued producing and then within about two months this new guy who took over got fired because he got basically shit face drunk and turned up to do the show wow out of his mind and so he blew it and i won't say his name because i don't want to disrespect him he's still, no he's still a friend but he he lost the job and so then the boss was like well no one knows the show better than you and you've been doing the odd cover show here and there and you've shown that you know you're capable and i know it's a big step but how do you feel about hosting the evening show and i was like are you fucking kidding me like yes i'll bite your hand off for that so literally a year to the day after i started as a work experience kid i was then given that show as my own um in demand with matt stocks it was called and that was the start of it when I did it for three and a half years before the station in Birmingham closed down. But that was the the timeline of events from finishing uni to hosting that show. Just a year, a whirlwind year of right place, right time. Someone else's misconduct and misfortune yeah. became obviously my stroke of good luck and opportunity. And I was off. So at that point, I take it you started getting a salary and you actually earned some money. Yeah, then they did finally pay me. But honestly, it was £18,000. Yeah. Which, you know, you probably earn more than that working behind a bar full time. Yeah. And so from the outside looking in, your life looks very glamorous and exciting. And I didn't care about the money. I didn't. I I would have done the evening show as a host for free for a certain amount of time because I just loved it so much. And, you know, when you're... 24 years old and you're living in Birmingham which isn't the most expensive city in the world to live in I think it's changed a bit in the last few years but then I was living in a house in Moseley for 500 pounds a month in this beautiful massive room Um, and it was the craziest happiest times of my life because you know you're like a kid still really you're in your mid-20s you're meeting your heroes on a daily basis yeah slash Duff Nikki Six Alice Cooper Noel Gallagher uh, Tom Jones even came in one day because Q was based in the same building. Uh, Roger Daltrey, like the list is literally, yeah. literally endless. Every day was an exciting new day. There'd be Corey Taylor coming in to do an acoustic performance one day. There'd be Blackstone Cherry and Hailstorm and all the you know exciting up and coming bands at the yeah. time just starting out their career, living in Kerrang. Like they'd always come and visit and just spend the whole day in there, meeting fans, doing live acoustic sessions, and it was it was the dream job. It was the best happiest times of my life still now i think looking back it was such a golden amazing period 
And it's a shame, isn't it, now, because of stuff like Spotify and every radio station going, we don't get that opportunity to see and discover these new bands as easily because we rely on our friends and playlists and Spotify. But I think, you you know, when you think back then, you would have had bands like Don Broco and people like that on there. And now Absolutely. look how big they are. They're headlining arenas now. So I to was see one of them, the first people yeah. in the UK to play Twin Atlantic, Don Broco. Bring Me the Horizon, a lot of bands that are now no longer together, as yeah. well bands like The Blackout and We're the Ocean. But yeah, there was loads of great new bands at that time all coming through. And as you say now, like they'll headline Alexandra Palace. Yeah. And it's phenomenal. And that's only in five years. And I always, you know, it's the constant theme that always comes up and I'm bringing it up, not you. So you can dodge the bullet, but everybody always says, is rock dead? And it's like, well, if a band that play guitars can headline 12,000 capacity venues five years into their career. Yeah. The obvious answer is no. Exactly. <laughs> it's. I think it's a great time. I, I, I'm not being arrogant, but I was looking at bands when there was that wave of like 100 Reasons, Headers for Heroes, um, Ruben, yep. Vex Red, and I thought the music scene at that point was its best. I thought we've never gonna, we're never going to get that again. And I kind of, I think I was talking to Jamie Lemon and I said it and he's like, what are you on about? Like, look at Black Peaks now and all these new bands. And I was kind of probably oblivious because I'm so hooked on the, that period of time. Well, but- music is a very nostalgic thing. And I think you associate certain bands and genres and styles and periods yeah. of music with periods in your own life. And, you know, there's nothing quite like the excitement of a concert as a hormonal teenager yeah. do you know what i mean and so i think the the glaze of nostalgia is always gonna i think elevate bands of the past yeah to a higher plateau in your mind because that's the way you've built up that mythology because it's obviously now no longer here yeah um and that's the magic of music isn't it and the fact that we're getting bands like biffy clyro now headlining download you know we're getting bands that we've had like feeder we were talking earlier they've yeah. headlined you don't get shit, man. Like, that's that's mad. To see Biffy Clyro, what, 15 years ago playing to, like, 20 people in Derby for a fiver, and now you can't get a ticket because they're just the hottest band in the world. It's insane. What's also amazing about Biffy Clyro is not only are they huge in the rock world, but they're also a legitimate pop band yeah. now as well. But they make very angular, interesting, challenging music yeah. that sits in the charts alongside, let's be honest, a lot of very unadventurous, yeah. mundane stuff. So to have a band like that that is so huge but also still so original and exciting because the other side is you go down the Red Hot Chili Peppers road where you get massive but you get progressively more boring and repetitive and unadventurous and unoriginal. Like the Chili Peppers, man, in the late 80s, early 90s, one of the most ferocious, unstoppable, exciting bands on the planet. And now you go see them live and it is just soul-destroying. It is. How boring they are and uninterested Anthony Kiedis is yeah. in being there at all and how little he can sing live. Yeah. And a few bands, I think, have gone down that road of they've traded in their identity for success. Yeah. And it's a shame because even the albums aren't... If it wouldn't be so bad if you then bought the album and thought, well, the album's fucking ace, they're still putting effort in. When I listen to some of the... I'm well, not just picking on the, the Chili Peppers, but I don't... 
I can't believe that's the same band that did Blood Sucker Sex Magic. I'm like, is that really the same band that's released this new one now? And they'll be touring with bands like Snow Patrol, and you're like, what is going on in this world? Even Flea looks bored. Well, if you said to someone now, if you put a list of bands together, you would not put Red Hot Chili Peppers in the list with Fishbone. Now, you would put them in the list with Coldplay. Yeah. Because that's now where they sit. But back in the day, there was obviously them, Fishbone, Jane's Addiction. Yep. That LA scene just before grunge, kind of after the whole hair metal thing, right in the middle of that was this explosion of like drug-fueled crazy bands that were just kicking ass. It's depressing, man. And I think music did used to be better. I do. Like if you want to raise that topic, I definitely think, especially in the 60s, to go back even further, the politics of that time was fed into every element of pop culture, be it the movies, and you obviously must talk about this on your all movie day, podcast, every day, yeah, all the time. You know, films like Easy Rider and Bonnie and Clyde. Oh and, yeah, you know, even if they're not overtly political films, the politics of the time is definitely informing what's going on. And now the world we're living in is so crazy and messed up, probably more so than ever. Yeah, and yet you look at the kind of movies that are being made and a lot of the music that's being made, and you're like, well, where are the artists that are making comments on what's going on? and trying to change the way people think and feel about these horrible events that we're seeing on a daily basis. And there seems to me to be a massive void in political artists at the moment. I think they are out there, but they're probably just in people's sheds or little tiny bars playing to 10 people because, unfortunately, everyone else is too busy going to see the latest Coldplay. Playing it safe. Yeah, and just thinking that's the way it should be and there's not enough room now for bands to get out there because it's so flooded. If you look at the market now, the only good thing about it is is bands are having to work harder. So you're having to go and tour and do 100 dates over a couple of years instead of just doing three or four shows. Like you see bands like Pearl Jam even doing 20 dates now because they need to get the money because no one's buying their records. It's all streaming. So at least bands you get to see more often. From a punter's point of view, yeah, it's, then it's amazing. Great. But Be- as a being listener... On, being on tour at the moment myself, I can... Def- and I'm not saying that I'm having it hard at all because I'm loving life right now. But yeah. I can definitely sympathize, though, with bands, particularly of a certain age, having to go out on the road to make money because it's a hard fucking gig, man. Yeah. Like, it's not hard like the guy who's up at 6 a.m. laying concrete in the freezing cold, but it's certainly grueling. And I'm okay because I'm single and I don't have any kids and I've got no responsibilities. But I see these guys every night, man, missing their kids, missing their wives on FaceTime. Thankfully, technology, I think, makes being away from home way better because you can see the face of your loved yeah. ones on your screen. But I definitely see in a lot of these guys the 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 toll yeah. that life in a touring band has on your personal life and on your mental health. Yeah. Um, and that's something that I think is obviously now being focused on a lot more, which is great. But uh, yeah, going back to the original point of bands having to work harder and get out there more because you can't just have a play on Radio 1 and instantly, boom, just watch those PRS checks come rolling in. Yeah. It's definitely exciting. I don't think there's not exciting music being made, but I definitely think that people are afraid to speak their mind on certain issues other than the obvious ones. And obviously everybody is against racism. Yeah, of course. You know, everybody should be against sexism. But there's other things that people should be talking out about, but they're afraid to yeah. because of how it'll hurt or hold back their career. And I do just wish there was a few more braver people taking chances. Well, it is a slippery slope. You've got to be very careful. You've got to tread very lightly because if you do make that one step and offend the wrong person or it gets read wrong, there's too many vultures out there trying to help trip you up. 
So if you go on social media and you say something wrong and it's read wrong or you're out in the street, you're even getting criticised now if you're an actor and you haven't signed something to someone in the street. Someone will then publish it saying, this guy doesn't care for his he's fans. He's a jerk. He's an yeah. arsehole. He's all about the money. It's like, no, he's probably having his dinner with his wife and he hasn't seen her for six months and he's just wanting a bit of time. But because he refused it to one person, he's now the biggest arsehole in the world. And, and it goes viral, doesn't it? Everywhere. Yeah. And that's it. Suddenly on Twitter, it's trending and you're fucked. The weird double edge with social media is that artists are more accessible now than ever before. And yeah. you should just be happy with that. Do you know what I mean? Like you were t- talking to me earlier about direct messages that you've shared with huge rock yeah. stars. That if you'd have told your teenage self that, you would have gone, there's no way in a million years I'd be having yeah. regular text communications with this person. So that that access is there. But then people are like, well, that's not enough. Yeah. I need every essence of this person's being. Like, I own their soul. And if they refuse to, as you say, have a photo or sign something, then they're clearly a horrible person and don't deserve to work. I know. And it's like, what the fuck are you on about? And those people usually have only gone on um, Spotify and streamed their song and haven't yeah. even paid for the T-shirt their exactly. bands put out. So it's, we it's had, a weird one. We had one guy. Thankfully, the Dirty Sanchez fan base are lovely. Yeah. And I've done nine shows of those guys now, Q&A shows. So um, to give everybody listening to this a bit of context... I host a podcast, which I'm sure we'll get to a little later on, and the boys were guests on that. And the episodes with those two are still actually the most listened to episodes out of everyone that I've done, which That's is crazy. Awesome. Because there's way bigger names in the mix, but I think just because there's so many fans of that show still out there, uh, and it still connects with people, and like what we were saying a minute ago about music, like you have happy memories of watching Dirty Sanchez as a kid. Yeah, definitely. There was no YouTube then, so you couldn't just watch these horrendous or hilarious home video clips that you can now access at the touch of a button. So to see that show on Channel 4 and see those guys doing that stuff, it left a mark on a lot of people. So we've gone out and we've done a bunch of Q&A, evening with shows, and part of the whole package is a meet and greet, just included in the ticket price. And... Apart from literally one guy, everybody's just been more than happy with that because yeah. it's like, you don't owe us anything. You could just do this show, do the audience Q&A, and then leave. But we take a full hour at the end to make sure that they meet and have a picture with every single person who came to the show. But there was this one guy, I can't remember which show it was, but he was the only one, and he was so livid that he couldn't like basically take them out for dinner and hang out with them for the whole night. And like, he felt like he was owed more and you're like, mate, you've had your photo. You've got to say hello to the boys. You've had a three hour show where you've heard all these stories. You've seen unseen clips and you were a paying customer yeah. along with everybody else. What makes you think that you're that bit more special? You fucking idiot. It ruins it, doesn't it? But there's always one. There is a, that phrase exists for a reason because there literally is always one. So we just talked about how great this job was at Kerrang and you were there for three years and it was all literally probably the best period of your life, you just said, which is I'd a hell of a statement. Still to this day, and I've done a lot of incredible stuff since then, but there's just there was just something about that time. I was just I was single, yeah. I was living my dream and I was having a lot of fun. It's cool as fuck. It's like most people come back from work, what did you do today? Oh, I hit my sales target, or I got to sell some add-ons. What did you do? Oh, I hung out with Queens of the Stone Age. You win every time. Yeah, and because the evening show was such a unique lifestyle, and I was so well suited to it, because you'd get the band in in the day. If you hadn't met them before, you'd make friends with them in the interview. And then they'd say, oh, you're coming to the show tonight. And you're like, well, I've got to be on air till 10. And I'll, I'll go on record now and say that very cheekily, what I used to do is uh, I'd line up requests for the last hour of the show. So I'd send out tweets and Facebook messages and I'd get 
an hour's worth of requests ready and I'd put that in the system and then I'd pre-record all my links and make out like I was still in the studio for the last Genius. hour and I'd piss off to the gig and I'd go hang out with the bands and then I'd take them out to the bars afterwards and I wouldn't need to be in work till I mean I could turn up for work realistically at 6.30 if I wanted to but because I cared about the job and wanted to make that show the best show it could be I'd arrive usually for 3pm every day spend two hours listening to all the new music on my desk creating edits if I had like a new album of the week of highlights of the record and obviously editing the interviews sending out requests for interviews and just trying to make it an amazing show but I still wouldn't have to be in work till 3 so I could go out partying till whenever yeah the bus call for bands is usually 2 or 3am, so I'd be out till then. And then I'd go back home, pass out, wake up at midday, and then in work for two. Like, Not bad life, is it really, it, mate? It was the dream, dude. It was so good. So let's dampen it. Why did it yes. end in 2013? Because that just seems like you'd still be doing it now if you could. I think I'd 100% still be there if the station was still in Birmingham or if indeed the, the station was or is what it once was. Yeah. Um, sadly, it's not. And it's, I think it's only available online now. I don't think it's DAB. That's what or, I think. Yeah, I've never seen it when I've been searching at like work to try and listen to it. It's never there now. It might be on like a music channel. Right. Do you know what I mean? On the TV. Yeah. But then who today listens to radio on the television? Not I know many. that was a thing for a while. Yeah. But I would say literally nobody listens to Kiss FM on their TV anymore. No. Um, it's either in your headphones, on your phone, on the move, in your car or I guess in the house on a traditional radio if you're a bit older. Um, so, okay, let's try and think about what went down. So we, in I think May of 2013, were nominated for Best Radio Station of the Year with over a million listeners alongside Six Music and BBC Radio 2. Nice. And the third was Kerrang Radio. So we were in the mix with the greatest and best in the industry. And we all went down to London for the Sony Awards. I had a wee next to Adam Buxton. As you do. And he was like, we have the best jobs in the world, don't we? Because he was at Six Music at the time. And I'm kind of there going, I work, like I host the evening show on a station that is held in the same regard as the two most world famous radio stations, other than Radio 1, of course, as well. Yeah. I think Radio 1's been garbage for a long time. Radio 2 and 6 Music still are prestigious radio stations yeah. to my mind. And we're on the same list of greatness with that. So we were at the top of our game creatively. The station was crushing it. Numbers were good. But the problem with rock then and now is it's not very marketable to a mainstream audience because it's just not a mainstream music form anymore. And therein, I think, is some weight towards the argument that rock is dead because it's not as big as Rihanna. Um, but it's definitely not dead. It's just, it's not popular with the kids. Yeah. You know, hip hop, grime and pop is all youth kind of culture is centered around, I think today. Um, and so the marketing side of the station just had the hardest job in the world. They could not sell adverts. They could not bring any money into the station. We were existing in this really expensive building with really high end equipment. So the rent was exorbitantly high. And I guess Bauer, who own Kerrang, I think they still own them now, were looking at the numbers and they're like, well, we don't care if you've been nominated for Station of the Year and you've got this many listeners. This is how much it costs to run the station and this is how much money you bring in through advertising. And they went, it's not feasible. So we're shutting the station down. We're closing the Birmingham offices. We're going to lay off half the team. We're going to start paying our presenters peanuts. Yeah, All shows are going to be pre-recorded and um, we'll get loads of basically free work in like so a lot of the producers i think who now work there and probably a lot of the presenters who now work there 
don't get paid anything. No. If they do, they get paid very little. And so I was one of the ones who got laid off, which was heartbreaking for me because I'd also been nominated for a uh, Best Specialist Music Show of the Year award at the Archiva Awards. So my show was doing really well. The numbers were the best they'd ever been. I was getting on some of the biggest guests in the world and it was popping. The show was sounding incredible because I put in so much work into it and they just turned around and went. It was that case of, I think, last in, first out, which is fair enough. You yeah. know, there, there was people like my dear friend Johnny Doom, who's still there, and Loz Guest, who's still there. And they'd been there since the launch of the show. So obviously the loyalty is going to be to those guys and I don't begrudge them that at all because they were really what, made that station what it was from day one and they were the the foundation that held it well still probably hold it together now i haven't listened to the station since i left it just because it's like when you break up with a girlfriend you don't want to see them again it really felt like that to me and i haven't listened to krang radio once since june 8th 2013 because it's just still too difficult because the memories are so good yeah and it's not because i look back at that time with any regret no. i don't i lived it up and i had the best time but it's just it's still weirdly a little bit painful for me to think of how great a station that once was and i'm not knocking anybody who still works there no of today, course not and i'm sure they do good work and i'm sure they've got good figures still and i'm sure they run it very efficiently and people still tune in and enjoy kerrang but for me it's like it was that period of my life and then i just had to close that door and just move on man <laughs> so we're talking five years ago obviously without you know it's still very raw i can tell because it's a dream job listening to what you're doing anyone would give anything to do that it's just an absolute dream you know go out with the band do this do that How it was d- more the lifestyle centered around the yeah. work because i still get to do the work that i love now yeah but it's a lot more of a solitary experience because i'm not in a station with my friends like what i really miss the most is being sat next to Kate Lawler, who's now on Virgin, and yeah. Danielle Perry, who's on Absolute, and Loz, and Johnny Doom, and my friend John Mahan, who I think now actually does present on Kerrang! He used to produce my show. And we just had the coolest workforce. And you can imagine, like, every show you ever see of, like, say, uh, a cartoon, like, say, the South Park office, you can imagine that that is a very cool yeah. place to work because everybody there is intelligent and liberal and informed and switched on and we just had the coolest workforce and so not only was the back hanging around with band side but it was also just i loved my colleagues and i loved going to work every day like i'd be so excited every day to get into work see everyone listen to some new music get sent i'll never forget i played um god is dead the sabbath song off their last album 13 and i remember getting sent that and having the world exclusive first play of that track amazing on kerrang they were like, they'll send it to you live whilst the show's happening because it's like one of those proper cloak and dagger things. So I'm there going, Black Sabbath, the inventors of heavy metal, are sending me their brand new song in a station based in their hometown, my hometown, and I'm going to be the first person in the world to share new music from Black Sabbath with everybody. And little moments like that, you just cannot top the rush and the adrenaline and the excitement of that. <sighs> right? That's good, isn't it? I, I've always been very jealous of those people that say, if you get the right job, you never work a day in your life. And it's true. And it sucks because there's not enough opportunities or jobs out there for people to feel like that. So, how did you take it? I mean, did you, it must have been, how did you actually, and I don't want to, you know, piss on all this really good 
positive energy that's happening right now <laughs> but obviously you must have it must have hit you hard because you had your dream job taken from you and it's not like there's just oh but don't worry you can go to virgin or you can go to you know rock sound or anything like that what how did you how did you take it i knew the day i found out that that was what was going to happen and i'll never forget that day either we were called into the office for what was called a strategic meeting. Oh dear. And I now know that that means everybody's getting fired. Yeah. For everybody listening. Alarm bells. Just don't even go. Yeah. And so I remember sitting in the pub in Moseley, opposite where I lived, the Prince of Wales, and my friend Andy was working behind the bar at the time. And I remember just accepting that moment. I was like, my life as I know it is over. And that's why I wanted to reinforce the whole lifestyle around the job is because if you lose a job that you love, that's difficult. But when you lose a job that your entire life is built around your social network, your lifestyle, like, you know that not only the money and the job is going and the craft that you have built up and what you know and love, but also the life that you've built is just going to be ripped away from you. So I remember getting smashed in the bar and then we went in for the meeting the next morning and there was tears like all the girls were crying a couple of the guys you could see were like welling up there was people with you know mortgages and kids and their whole that was the other thing I guess is I didn't have any responsibility so I was probably the best off in a way because I was the youngest and all I was going to lose was my rock star lifestyle yeah yeah whereas everybody else is like well I'm gonna have to think about how I'm gonna be able to feed my kid so it was it was brutal and we all got hit by it hard even the ones who were going to be staying and working for the company I think had a very difficult period of adjustment but what happened to me is I basically descended into a spiral of extreme depression and alcoholism and I became or it felt like I became at least a ghost in my own life because I'd be out in Birmingham and I'd still want to go to like the concerts that I would go to anyway and I still had a couple of DJ gigs and bars that I would continue to do and all I get every night is people coming up to me going you're the guy that used to work on Kerrang like what's going on now and you're like well I can't tell you anything dude like nothing's going on yeah because when you get to that level as well in the rock world the only other job that there was out there was dan p carter's job and he's still doing it now yeah and i knew at that point in time i was like i'm not going to get a job as good as this again and i don't know whether i ever will i still that's why i purposefully don't have a job and i'm self-employed and i love working for myself because i've had the peak epitome of what a great job is and after kerrang just to skip ahead real quick i joined team rock team, yeah team rock radio and that was one of the worst professional years of my life. I, I had a better time working on bars because everybody in that office, not everybody, there was a couple of cool people that I maintain friendships with to this day, but most of the people in that office were A, not very good at their job, but B, just really unprofessional in their approach to their job. And so there would be ego and bitchiness and, and, and all of that stemmed from insecurities. And I think because I swanned in there pretty cocksure and headstrong because I'm not a, a, like an, an arrogant, cocky person. I hope that you've deducted at least that much from the. You know, I can vouch this. sitting here right now. You're a nice guy, and it's <laughs> in my, genuine. In my tiny shoebox yeah, room, and there is no swimming pool. But I don't suffer fools, and I'm there to do a job, and I don't fuck around, and I'm not there to please you. I'm there to please people who are going to be enjoying whatever product I'm making, be that a reader of a magazine or a listener of a podcast or yeah. whatever. And I rubbed a lot of people up the wrong way because they were like, who did this guy think? Because they almost had their little click. And I arrived from Birmingham and Kerrang and, you know, was just very cocksure with my approach and they didn't like it. And it was a horrible year and it was a horrible time in my life. Um, 
But what it did was it got me back in the music industry, if you will. And it got me excited about my career again because I then got let go from Team Rock Radio because that station also went under. And that's when I made the decision. I was like, I've got to stop getting jobs with yeah. with media companies that are going to just fire me when they run out of money. And I've got to start trying to think about the long game and building up something which I have more of an ownership and control over. So that's when I became a freelance writer for Metal Hammer uh, and Classic Rock. And I was doing a lot more DJ gigs around that time and basically hustling a living quite well because I'd be writing an article almost every day which would be between fifty, uh, sorry, 500 to 1,000 words, which would be between 50 to 100 pounds a day, which is all right. Yeah, not bad at all. Just to sit at home, call up Buzzo from the Melvins, chat about his top 10 Nirvana songs or whatever, and then type that up. Because I had at this point in time a really good contact list, the editor would just say, I need a top 10 list by tomorrow morning. Can you get on it? So I'd just call Benji from Skindred or Joel from Airborne or one of my, without trying to be a name dropper, one of my many associates and friends in the industry I could just get last minute interviews with because I would I was doing that a lot on Kerrang towards the end of my time there I'd just be calling people up and you know like you never know who's going to yeah, be a course. surprise guest on the show so I was doing that and loving it really because I was just I don't need to deal with the politics of the industry I can just sit at home write an article go out and DJ at night um, I've totally missed out the effect that leaving Kerrang had on my life I'll go back to that in a minute um, but yeah, I just my experience of really, I guess, the London music industry and working within that and the politics that are involved was a steep learning curve for me because I've always spoken my mind and we could do that in Birmingham, in Kerrang, because it was just us and we were outside of the the beast, as it were. But then as soon as you get right in the middle of it in London and you get stuck in, it's a different vibe. I don't know whether you found that at all with the world that you enter uh, from a journalistic it's, it's standpoint. A, it's a tough one because when anyone refers to me as a journalist, I never put myself in the same category as those other guys. So but when I go you go to, to events, press conferences and events and you, yeah, you've so stepped am. inside that So world. I am, but I don't look at, when I see the guy from the BBC or someone else next to me, I'm like, that's not me. Yep. I just want a nice chat with this person as like a friend. I want to make friends with this person and talk about what they've done and show an interest. I don't have notes. I don't sit there with pages of, hello, welcome to BBC. Um, what year did you discover that you wanted to be an actor you know i i just want to have a nice chat and if it ends up being a good podcast and people can listen to it and enjoy it i've done well that's, that's how i look that at is it. exactly my philosophy yeah. towards podcasting you know. and, and everything i do and the same i don't consider myself a journalist no. i would say that if i had to say uh, on a cv how do you state your profession but in life i certainly don't identify with fellow journalists no because there's an agenda with almost every other journalist that i've met and come into contact with and with that agenda comes their own personal ego and uh conflicts arise well, and the whole job is to get a headline their dream is for one person to kind of slip up mm-hmm. um or get a racist comment out of someone or something they can twist and i'm the opposite you know if i've had people and we discussed before we started recording today i've had some of the biggest actors in the world slip up and say something and i took it out because i didn't want to damage them that probably speaks more about me as a good person hopefully but i could have fucking got on the headlines of the sun you could have rode that PR wave and, I could and now built your be audience all and, over the yeah. world by telling people basically this actor called someone an arsehole but I don't want to because why would I want to tarnish and ruin someone's career because they've given me their time and also someone that you respect and admire yeah and you've spent the time with them and you see their true character yeah and you don't want that one slip of the tongue to be taken out of context and yeah. represent them in a way that isn't truthful yeah, and because I'd rather that's do a that. Lot of what journalism is, isn't it? Isn't and I'd it? rather do that and be skint 
than be rich from getting people to look like arseholes. Amen, brother. We're on exactly the same page there. So let, let me jump back real quick. So yeah, um, let me jump back. To I the, think you're cursed. That's the, my thing. Because I've just looked on my notes here and, you know, you, you lost out at Krang. You went to Team Rock Radio. You lost that. You know, yeah. it was kind of a, you need to be your own manager because you just, I think, you know, someone's out there to fuck you because you should be doing it yourself. Well, this is what I learned because I went to Cuba with my ex-girlfriend for Christmas in 2016. Yeah. After almost two years of working for myself and I'm doing the inverted commas when I say that because I was technically still beholden to metal hammer and classic rock because i was doing all my writing for that one company yeah and then the brooklyn bowl was the venue in london where i was the resident dj and i want to say a very quick uh, not that he'll probably be listening to this ever but a guy called jake who used to run that place was such a supportive friend to me yeah uh, and he hooked me up with so much work in that venue and so the dj work there and the writing work with metal hammer and classic rock allowed me to exist quite comfortably for two years and I got into this false sense of security that I'm free because I'm not, I don't have a boss, but I was really relying on those two companies to provide me with work. And I went to Cuba for Christmas with my ex and we didn't go on the internet the whole time we were there because there's not really much Wi-Fi there. And it's one of the few opportunities you have in today's world to drop off the grid and actually just experience life in the real world. Like, unadulterated does that that mean you actually had to talk to each other and like actually live like adults why do you think she's the ex (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's uh it was very old it wasn't soon after then that we did break up yeah that wasn't the reason and um so so we got home on new year's eve and we were in madrid airport because we had a a delayed flight so we were like oh we've got some time to kill let's both go on facebook and our emails and catch up on the world and what we've missed over the last three weeks and i turn on my phone and it's the Brooklyn Bowl is closed down, and uh, Metal Hammer and Classic Rock have gone out of business. And so, for the third time in three years, yeah, I'd lost everything again. And I was just like, "For fuck, you, like you said it, I feel like I'm cursed. Like yeah. this keeps happening." And that was really when I made the decision because I was going to start the podcast anyway. Yeah, and I'd done the first few episodes, and I was going to launch it in January anyway. But it was going to be a sideline. And then after that, I just went, you know what? Fuck it. It's going to be a long, uphill, hard battle. But my goal is to make this podcast my full-time money earner. And then nobody can just come in and take it away from me and go, yeah, this isn't yours anymore. It's gone because it's mine and I own it and I'm in control of my destiny. So that's the, the journey and the trip I've been on ever since January 2017 is that, is trying to build the thing up to a point where i can just live comfortably i'm not looking to get rich just want to pay rent go on the occasional holiday and enjoy my life and still get to do what i love doing which i do um and i get to do it on my own terms now which is but that's really dream that's really good to hear because you had it bad so much that you you talked about when you got um laid off at Kerrang. you you were rock bottom that's the probably lowest you've been so you've gone from being the highest in the best job going out with the bands living life getting drunk and living like a rock star but not having to go on stage really that's your life that was it yeah and then you went through depression quite bad and it got so bad that you almost took your own life yeah and that's not trying to put a dampener on it but i think it reflects well because for the listener out there i don't want to suddenly drop it down but it's nice to now see how you are and how happy you are and in control and you're getting more success um but it probably took you to be rock bottom to then get yourself back up well, the irony of 
of all of that was yeah I, I started drinking and you know just really not taking care of myself and I got to the point where and this stupid romantic idea that I had in my head was I was just gonna join the old 27 club and tap out at 27 I was 27 at the time and I felt like my life was over I felt like the good times the best times of my life had been and now gone all my friends were starting to settle down with their partners and start build lives for themselves and you know get mortgages and do all of that stuff which I'm still not doing but at that point in time I had well now I've got you know I've got my life obviously but then I had this very cool exciting life I didn't have a partner or maybe even really a strong circle of friends I've always maintained close relationships with my old school friends but because I live a slightly set well a very drastically different lifestyle to them I've never quite felt like part of any group always like not a loner because I'm very sociable and I've got a lot of friends but I've never really had like that one group of friends that you know you do all your activities yeah. together and so when the Kerrang thing went down I was just like my life's over I'm done like I've got no reason to live anymore so I started drinking to the point where I was like I'm gonna just try and slowly but surely kill myself with alcohol and then was that your purpose though when you were drinking and buying that bottle of whiskey were you thinking I'm gonna kill myself or were you just going with it and thinking day by day well I didn't want to live no so I guess that was the purpose I mean I wasn't but in a drawn out slow manner yeah yeah because well, I'm lazy at suicide yeah no it, I mean if I really wanted to end my life with alcohol I would have drunk yeah. a lot more at a lot quicker rate um but I, I threw myself on some train tracks uh in well December 15th 2013 which is the dumbest thing in the world because train tracks aren't that high up no and uh but i basically i've been on tour with a band called airborne and i want to say a huge thank you to them as well because at a point in my life where i had nothing they said mate we're going to get you back in the game uh come out on the road with us make a documentary about our band like we'll pay you a wage to come out and film it and stuff and then obviously you can make this thing and release it and then that will give you a new leg to, uh, like a new arm to your career and can give you a chance to get back in the the world that you know and love. So they did me a really amazing favor in that. And I went out on this tour with them and had the best time. And for the first time in six months since Karan closed, I was like, wow, all right, the old me is kind of coming back. This is great. And then I finished the tour and it was really weird. Like the next day, just boom, straight back to, I hate my life. It's over. And so I went on a two-day bender and, uh, yeah, woke up on the train tracks in Birmingham, Snow Hill Station. Thankfully, I was alive, but I'd broken my spine in three places. Uh, I'd broken, like, five ribs, fractured my wrist, broken my sternum, and I was lying on the tracks. And thank God, um, or whatever else is out there. I'm not religious, but it's a phrase. Thanks, someone. It's, it's a phrase that yeah. applies in this instance. Um, the guy who was opening up the station because it was about 5am that I'd gone in and done it and the station was closed and the guy who was opening the station must have heard me like crying out in agony and he came down because I just I, I was blackout drunk and I don't even really remember what happened which is the hardest thing about it all because obviously when you tell someone I've broken my spine they go well how did you do that and there's not really a short answer so you, I just have to say I fell on some train tracks because I don't I don't really remember whether I consciously threw myself on them or whether I just fell like because I was so pissed but I knew that in my head I didn't want to live so yeah. it could have gone either way you know but basically I was just 
out of control and that was the ultimate ultimate wake up call obviously because I'm going to condense this down because I could talk to you for hours just about this and I don't want to linger on it too long because it's pretty gnarly to talk about but the guy got me an ambulance the stretcher got me off the, the tracks before the first train of the day came and sawed me in half thank whoever but then what happened was I went to the hospital and I had an x-ray and because it was some fucking well maybe it's not his fault maybe the fault is much higher up with the government and lack of funding for the NHS but this guy had basically been on his own all night on a night shift in A&E and he was clearly just knackered and wasn't on it and so he didn't spot and how he didn't spot it is insane because I had three spinal fractures five broken ribs broken sternum broken wrist all this stuff he just went yeah you're fine we need the bed and I was like, mate, I'm not, I know I'm not. I can feel it in myself that <laughs> something is really wrong. And Christ, I had to book a cab and walk out of there with a broken spine. <laughs> and so I get in this car and I'm on my way home. I was like, I've got to go to my mum's house. So I called her, I was like, I'm coming over. I've done something really stupid. I'm in a really bad way. Like, please don't kick off. But just you'll see when I get there. And I remember pulling up in the cab and my mum and dad, my dad, they're not together, but they were both there. And my sister was there and they were all just like, I could see the shock on their face. That's when you only know the the extent of yeah. the damage that you've done to yourself is when you see the way other people look at you, right? And so I got in the house, got in bed, and my sister was like hanging out with me in the bedroom to make sure I was okay. And she said, I just started going gray and just started looking like I was, like she could sense that I was dying. And so they called the doctor, the local GP. She comes over, same thing, checks me. He seems fine. If he's still feeling bad, another 24 hours, take him to the hospital. And I was like, there's definitely something fucking yeah. wrong with me. Like two professionals who clearly don't know what they're on about have told me otherwise, but I know what's up because it's my body. And so I go back to bed and then basically I wake up again and I'm on a stretch and I'm being taken out of the house. And to cut another long story short, what had happened was my broken ribs had punctured my lung and I was drowning in my own blood and fluid. So I was literally drowning in bed. And my sister just literally saw that the lights were going out. So she was like, we've got to call an ambulance. So they take me to the hospital and I'll never forget this guy. He had massive fingers. This is German doctor. And he literally sliced me open. He had to stuff his big sausage, Uh, fat sausage fingers inside me. Christ. And put a tube in there to drain out all this pints of just mucus and blood and stuff that had been clogging up my lungs and slowly killing me. And they said I was like three hours away from dying and then so from there blah 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 blah. but after that spent three months in bed flat on my back whilst the fractures healed um naturally because the the surgeons seemed to think that because there was three if they were going to operate they'd have to literally go in cut my entire back open and put this whole scaffolding system in and it was going to be a really complicated like dangerous procedure jesus and they were like it's going to be much better for you and your body obviously the idea of being in bed for three months was the most hellish proposition on earth but they said in the long run this is going to be the much better option for you so that would be our advice so i said well okay let's get a second and third opinion because no offense but i don't really trust you guys record right now is pretty shit and everybody said the same thing so but it was gnarly because there was a period when I got rushed into hospital where I wasn't I wasn't just instantly fine. Like it was about two or three days of like slipping in and out of this mortal world, if you will. Like I could I could feel my soul leaving my body at various points, but then just about making it back. And I was on like like a basically like a life support thing. 
Um, but it was crazy, dude. But what all of that experience taught me um, beyond the obvious, don't abuse alcohol and be a fucking idiot yeah. with your life um, is the the preciousness of life. And I don't want to sound too cheesy, but honestly, when you do almost die and you've wanted to die for so long and you could have, you know, I could have never walked again. Yeah. And I was in a ward with a lot of guys who had all been in motorcycle accidents as, and most of the guys in the ward that I spent the three months in are probably now to this day still, you know, not walking. They're probably still paralyzed. So I knew how fortunate I was not only to be alive, but to have, you know, control of all my body still. Yeah. And just how fortunate and surrounded by amazing people I was the whole time, but never saw it because I was so hung up on wanting to be hanging out with rock stars and going to gigs and doing all the sort of glamorous stuff that I'd been doing. And I didn't really see what was in front of me the whole time, which is my family and my amazing friends. And I had, so, and luckily it was over Christmas. So loads of people were off work for a couple of weeks and I had like three to four visitors every day for the first month or so at least. And then, you know, it would drop down after that when people were back at work and stuff. But my family was so amazing. And, uh, Give me a second. <laughs> they were the most supportive and loving, amazing people throughout all of it. And I just thought to myself, like, imagine if I'd have died, how much pain I would have caused you. And what a selfish, ridiculous way to live your life that is by not wanting to live because you can't get... And I know it's hard when people suffer from you know, serious mental health issues because it runs in my family and I know it and I understand it and I sympathize. But thank whoever I had this thing that woke me up out of that bullshit and made me realize like life is special. Life is important. Even if your life is a drag right now and you're unhappy right now, like it's going to get better. And, you know, they always, things always get better. Like these stints of darkness or depression, whatever people listening have, whatever they call them it doesn't last it doesn't last forever there's always a better tomorrow you just need to change your lifestyle change your attitude change the people in your life if they're being you know negative and just try and live and and cherish life for the the special and incredible thing that it is without sounding like a no no a preacher man the thing is as well those people listening that have those bad days or bad times I've said you're probably the luckiest man I've ever met for having that job, but now you're the luckiest man ever for having a second chance. And how many people would have not been woken up at 5am from that guy who's just starting his shift, who didn't look on the line at that point, and now you're... Why would you? (laughs) And someone obviously wanted you to be woken up. And it sounds ridiculous. He could have tried to move you and you'd be in a wheelchair now because he wouldn't be trained on how to lift someone who's just literally broke their spine. Yeah. Um, so I think as much as I, I say... I wish I knew that guy's name. Yeah. I wish even though we say you're cursed, someone definitely up there, whoever it is, is definitely looking out for you because how many people right now are still sat in that hospital unable to feed themselves because of a bike accident, which yeah. wasn't their fault. Yeah. And you fucked up and did it all on your own accord. That's, hey, that's the guilt of that, dude, was so... It was such a shameful... Well, it still is a shameful burden for me to bear because... But, but I, dude, think if you had done the worst, that burden you would never get a chance to put right. And look yeah. how much now you probably love and respect your family in a different light. They're your mum and dad. You love them. You love them whatever. But you know who you know who the real people are when you're at rock bottom. 
Absolutely, man. And I learned through that whole process who my real friends were. And yeah. really through the whole Kerrang process and Team Rock process. Like when your chips are totally down and gone, that's when your true friends step up. Yeah. The people who really care about you are the ones that are going to be there for you through your darkest, worst, lowest moments. And, you know, through sometimes your faults and your flaws, they're still going to have your back and show you love and support. And I've got the best friends in the world as well as my family. Like my friends were so amazing and continue to be. It's a good time to reevaluate as well because life can get busy. And I always think when you're at your lowest, because I've been low and I've had bad times where I thought this is it, um, you establish who's a friend and who's a mate. Yes. And, I and that's fine if you are just a mate, you know, mate, because the world needs, we all need mates as well as friends. Yeah. Sometimes you do just want to go for a casual beer with and a casual it. acquaintance. Yeah. And, and or Nando's and that's it. Yeah. Get some plug in, you know, let's get free Nando's out of this. But do you know what I mean? Like the fact is I might have 10 mates, but I've probably only got five or six true friends. And those are the people that would be there at the hospital bed sitting there waiting for me to wake up or bringing me my grapes and LucasAid and genuinely want to be there. The mates have a purpose, but the older I get, I realize there's very little true friends and those people you don't fuck with, you do not mess with because they're going to be there through thick and thin. It's a really interesting life lesson and I think it's one that you need to try and appreciate if you don't already is the differentiation not only between those two things, friendship and mates, but also that that's okay to only have a couple of yeah. good friends because really that's all you need. Yeah. And it kind of bums me down sometimes when I see people hung up on trying to gain more followers online and just try and be socially accepted with everyone. And it's like, you can't get on with everyone. There's going to be people in your life that don't like you and you don't like them and you clash for whatever reason, but that's fine. And there's so many people I've encountered through both my professional and personal life because of what I've been through both professionally and personally, that I just go, do you know what? We're not good for each other. There's nothing to gain from this. Let's nip this in the bud and just avoid each other. And that's cool. Yeah. And not walk around with any animosity or hatred. Because, you know, I could I could hate a lot of people in my industry for things they've said about me and the way I've been treated. And I could feel like I've been hard done by because of losing three gigs in three years and constantly being, you know, fired and just having nobody there to support me in a professional way. But all I think is, you know, everybody's out there living their own lives. And I get why a lot of journalists and presenters are anxious in today's world is because they're fearful for their profession and their life too. Yeah. And they're just trying to look after themselves and that's fine. That's fine too. And so, um, yeah. Sound like a total hippie now on a hippie rant, but no, just but try it's... and not live your life with any hatred or animosity towards people that you don't get on with. Just know that it's okay to not get on with everyone. Yeah, and there's the option of being safe. And if you want, you are fully well in your right to go and work in a job that's secure for a big corporation and will pay you a weekly salary. Uh, and you're going to be happy with that because it's safe. And not everyone has to go out there and be themselves and make a world for their own because if you've got a wife and kids and you want to know that you're bringing in the same amount every month consistently fucking hell full respect to you because it's Dude, consistent that, that is the literal dream yeah. for me and it's yeah. funny because i'll speak to people who are earning like 80 grand 100 grand a year they're killing it but they're so bored in their job but i'm like dude you have financial security yeah and honestly my life to you looks incredibly exciting because i get to do all this cool stuff but the sacrifice that i make is no financial security or stability and that can that can be hardcore on your brain yeah and not everybody is equipped to live a life where there is no certainty and thankfully i am 
because I've just been through enough bad times to, yeah. to, to just know that just be grateful for what you have got and see the positives and not focus on the negatives. But when I see my friends earning loads of money and buying nice houses and buying nice things for their children, I'm like, dude, you're living the best life that you could be doing right now. So don't feel down on yourself because you're not, you know, working some exciting job. It's like you're providing for your family yeah. and you've got a happy life and that should be cherished and respected. And, and I'm, I guess I'm always that friend that has to remind my friends that the, the safe life is also a fucking exciting one. Definitely. Just in a very different way. You know, it's, it's in, the best thing in the world to bring a child into this world. I'm sure. Are you a dad? No, no, me neither. It's like, I think I would be an awful husband, but I think I'd be a great father. Yeah. And it's something I really want for my life one day. It's um, just not the right time, dude. No. Well, I could, you know, I, I'm in a hotel in Leicester doing yeah. a podcast. Like, <laughs> Call in now. Come yeah. and have a date with Matt. Yeah. 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 I think uh, for now, my life is about freedom and independence. And I don't mean that in a relationship sense. No. I haven't been on a date in... Well, since I broke up with my ex-girlfriend, which was 18 months ago now, I haven't been on a single are we date. Are we not classing tonight as a bit of a date? I feel well, like we're getting on well. This is a well. mate date. This is yeah, a mate date. I'm enjoying it's it. It's a friend date. The my, chemistry's there. You know, it's all good. But I just don't have time in my life for uh, a relationship. And I learned that when my previous relationship fell apart. I had to make that choice where I was like, if I'm going to go for it with my career. And I've spoke to a few people about this and a few friends have said, like, you don't have to choose. You can have both. But I was like, no, to be a young, well, not that I'm even young anymore. God. You're showing your age already on this. You can't backtrack now and make out your windows are ever closing. But I I believe if you're ambitious and you're creative and you're hungry, you need to be single in the early stages. And, uh, you know, again, this isn't the early stages of my career, but it feels like it is because this podcast is my everything at the moment. And I know I need to be focused on just this for now to build it up to a level where I can then make more time in my life for hobbies and girls and you know friends and family like I'm aware that I'm not always around for my family and my friends as well but they get it and they support what I do and I always make time when I can to you know be at the weddings that are occurring and christenings and all that stuff which is now the the common thread in my life but how do you feel about that because Lemmy was someone who once said that, you know, you can't be in rock and roll and be married because the two just don't go well together. And I've seen that it does work with the bands that I'm on tour with now. But I just think if you're trying to make a name for yourself in the early stages and you're not looking for any distractions, I feel like to have that focus and that drive, that pure attention, you can't be thinking about other people. I think it's uh, it's so much of an impact on someone else in not even it's a not selfish fair, way, it? it's not fair. Yeah. So to have someone in your life that will have to take a back seat and not be the priority is a huge decision. And that's why some people say, all I want to do is be a footballer. All I want to do is be an astronaut. Well, if you do want that, you probably shouldn't be with someone else because they're going to hold you back. Not deliberately, but they're going to make your evenings and your weekends and your spare time filled because you want to go out there and do stuff why shouldn't your partner want to spend quality time with you? Because everyone else gets to go out for meals and go to the cinema and go on dates and spend evenings in, just normal evenings in. How are you meant to do that and then have this desire and wish to be the best at what you do 
it needs your time and commitment. And it's not even that you want to go out on the road and pull and do all this. It's, it's the my opposite time, of that for me. My yeah. time it wants to be sat in front of a laptop editing. I want yep. to be mixing. I want to be making new network friends. I want to be going to different events. How can I be doing all that with someone who then wants to spend time with me? Something has to give. So is it the, the wife and the children and the perfect family life that most of your friends have? Or is it, I'm going to go and be the next Daniel P. Carter, but Daniel P. Carter needed 10 years before he could get a wife and kids because he couldn't be saying, sorry, system of a down, sorry, Slipknot, sorry, Deftones, I can't come and interview because I need to go to Nando's with my missus. It's that sacrifice. So it's not selfish, it's not wrong, but that's the difference of why there's only one Daniel P. Carter because he had to sacrifice and give everything. Zane Lowe, he wouldn't have had some girlfriend at 20 and 25 that he could go on tour with Foo Fighters and do this. How could he? It's only now that he's established enough that he can turn up to when he wants and do what he wants. But no one making a name for themselves in the industry can commit and do that. And I think that's why people don't make it. Yeah. And looking back at the, I guess, the failure of my last relationship, I didn't really see at the time that we were on very different trajectories. And I get it now. Like in hindsight, I look back and I realize... All Olivia wanted was for me to be around more because she was very much in a routine and a habit in her life and she just wanted to make time for us to be a proper couple and do a couple things. But I was always off chasing this interview, doing that. And at the time when like the you know, the relationship kind of came to an end, I was a bit hurt and angry that I felt like she hadn't supported me. But in fact, I had just been basically making her feel like she was less important yeah. than my career and I guess in hindsight she was and that's kind of a, a horrible realization to make because then you think well am I just a horrible person that I care more about a job than a human being but then I think no actually because I'm on a quest not just to be successful because I don't really define success in a monetary way but I'm on a journey in my life and I want to I want to create things and I want to leave things behind. Like I want to make, you mentioned it, I think earlier yourself, like making a mark. That's what I'm here to do in my life. Um, some people choose fatherhood and, yeah, you know, that's their quest. And maybe one day, hopefully that will happen for me too. But right now, whilst I still have <laughs> the energy and before I get too old and fat, I want to try and leave some cool shit behind so people can go, well, he did some pretty good stuff with his life. Yeah. And that's and not out of any ego. That's just that that for me is what's always excited me about life is like when I see people leaving legacy is way too grand a word for anything I'm doing at this stage, but just bringing enjoyment into other people's lives and leaving a certain mark behind. Yeah. And it sounds cheesy, but I look at my podcast like a diary entry or a photo album that's there forever so if i do have kids i can say to my son or daughter one day look daddy interviewed anthony hopkins sir anthony hopkins (laughs) and it's always there forever and even when i'm dead someone can listen back and go wow that guy actually interviewed hannibal lecter and that's something i did off my own back so it's it's so precious and so meaning someone will always say to me why do you podcast it's not to hit a million downloads it's to leave something that i'm proud of that my parents can listen to that my you know future kids can listen to and, and future strangers yeah just you know, anyone yeah and hopefully somebody will listen to it and go do you know what that's awesome and if one person today listens to this interview who's down in the dumps and heard your story about hitting rock bottom and almost dying but you're here now that might be enough for them to put down that 
weapon of harm or that bottle of alcohol they're going to drink. And it sounds ridiculous, but if that's the one thing that someone has took from this, this is the best hour we've spent. So there it is. Now, I usually say all about, you know, what we talked about, but we're only halfway there. That's literally part one of this podcast. And as I said earlier at the start of this episode, I'm not going to leave you on a, <laughs> a huge cliffhanger and leave it like three weeks now. The next episode is only going to be a few days away. And for me, I've shown this podcast to three of my closest friends and I've asked them for their honest opinion. People that I trust that when I when I ask for their opinion, they're not going to be, you know, sugarcoating it and just trying to kiss my ass. They're going to tell me the truth. And all of them said it's their favourite interview they've listened to so far. They like how personal it is. And the next half gets really deep. Um, it's quite moving, um, but I'm very, very proud of it. And I really appreciate Matt kind of not holding back and letting his guard down and just talking to me like I've known him for years. And I think it's a very special moment I've been able to capture for you guys out there. Um, I'm teasing you now, aren't I? Because if you're listening now and it's still a few days wait, um, I do promise you it's worth it. But I'm not going to do the big thanks to Matt or talk about my next guest. All I'm going to do is say thank you so far for listening to the first part. I do hope you've enjoyed it so far and that you come back for part two. It will be available on Spotify, iTunes, Podomatic, markandme.com. Um, but in the meantime, if you've really enjoyed today's episode, hit me up on markandme.com because on there there's Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, email and all the other ways to contact me and just let me know what you think. If you don't like the episode, let me know. If you absolutely love it and you can't wait to hear the next part, let me know because the feedback that you give me is crucial. Uh, as always, as well, I have a Patreon page. I can't do these sorts of interviews and travel all over the country and buy all the equipment without your support. I really do appreciate it and I've got some fantastic prizes coming up for December. And I just want to reward the people that support me and uh, uh, you know acknowledge that. So thank you to everyone. And yeah, let's leave it there. So I'll be back in just a few days' time for the second part, which is episode 47. And I hope you've all enjoyed today's episode. Speak to you soon.